My name is David Bishop from ICL at Victoria University and welcome to the Conversation podcast. I'm speaking with Andrew Locke, the most accomplished high-altitude mountaineer in Australian history, who has recently written a memoir about his experience, Summit 8000, and will be appearing at the Melbourne Writers' Festival later this month. Andrew, welcome. Let me start by asking, which was the greater challenge, climbing all of the world's 8,000-metre mountains or writing Summit 8000? <laughs> it's a fair question. I think at the time they both seemed the harder of the two. Uh, I, this is my first book, and uh, it took a couple of years and, and a few false starts. Uh, and it was certainly a challenge, although a very enjoyable challenge and just as enjoyable as climbing the mountains themselves. Great. Now, I'm, I'm curious because everyone I speak to says it's, um, it's one of the most difficult things that they've ever done in, in writing a book. I'm not a particularly introspective person. Uh, and, and what I found is that the book forced me to be, to be that. Uh, I, I had kept very comprehensive diaries through all my expeditions. I had really detailed notes to refresh my memory. But uh, the perennial question, of course, is is why do you do it, and, and what did you feel, and 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 I needed to answer that question as best I could in the book. And so for that, I had to dig quite deep. Uh, and, and also, I'm, I'm actually a very private person, so revealing a lot about myself was quite uh, an emotional challenge, uh, but uh, my publisher and my, my agent <laughs> kept cracking the whip, and uh, I think I, I, I managed to do that for them. I've just finished uh, reading another book. It's called The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler, <laughs> and it talks about how extreme athletes have redefined the limits of the possible. I guess I'm seems to me that you are Superman and your achievements must have seemed impossible not that long ago. How do you think you've been able to redefine the limits of possible? Look, I, I definitely would not consider myself to be a Superman. I'm very much an average person from an average background, a city background. Uh, but I do think that it's the very lucky people in life who, who discover their innate ability and love doing that. And for me, that was mountaineering. And uh, because I already had a, an affinity for the outdoors, when I discovered mountaineering, I took to it like a duck to water and, and, and absolutely loved it. And, and for me, the adventures in the outdoors have always been about taking on challenges where the outcome is uncertain because if it's, if it's guaranteed, then for me, there's no point doing it. But in order then to achieve those challenges and overcome the obstacles, both internal and uh, physical, uh, that forced me every time to draw deeply upon my own motivation and physical stamina. And the 8,000-metre mountains, every single one of them is such an enormous challenge that every time uh, I went on one of these expeditions, I had to dig deeper and deeper. And when I finished uh, or achieved one particular objective, then I set myself sights on a more difficult one and had to dig deeper each time. And I think all of us have that... Uh, capability. It's just a matter of uh, identifying the process that forces us to draw upon it. This author, Stephen Kotler, he discusses how athletes have been able to do the impossible by tapping into flow, which is an, it's an optimal, almost effortless psychological state where we perform and feel our best. Is this something that you get often when you're climbing or, or when you're falling? Well, actually, that, that's very interesting he says that because I would agree wholeheartedly. Probably don't feel like I'm flying when I'm falling, but um, 
when I'm what, what the state that I try to achieve when I'm climbing really hard is a is a physical and, and mental state where I'm pushing really hard, but not at the to the extent that I'm going to burn out in a short amount of time because climbing on these mountains can be ten hours a day for weeks and weeks and weeks, and the summer day is invariably at least an eighteen or twenty four hour day of climbing and so you've got to get into that zone where you can just keep going despite the pain and the misery and the the, the uh, waning motivation just find a zone where you just keep on going and going and going and of course as you see the mountains dropping away below you and the vista of, of the entire planet opens up before you that's a great motivator to keep on going and uh, what, when I when I achieve that zone and it isn't on every mountain because weather conditions and objective difficulties can stop it. But when I do achieve that zone, I find that I can just go and go and go and go. And I think it's a bit like long distance running. You just, you just click that zone. Yeah, I guess what, why I mentioned um, falling because he also describes it that, you know, when everything's happening very quickly around you, but there's also this kind of like the world slows down and you can see all the options. You know, I need to grab here. I need to open my legs. I need to do... This and that. So I was just wondering whether that, whether you also get that psychological state when there's maybe a, a more dangerous instance during your climbing. Well, you are very focused. Uh, I certainly find that I am extremely focused when I climb. In fact, I, I liken it almost to, be, to being uh, meditative because you are so focused, and it's it's a prolonged uh, state of meditation because you're focused for weeks and weeks. And and yes, you, one becomes hyper vigilant for all the dangers and the threats that are around you. Um, but you, you are also very focused on, on the immediacy of what you're doing. So, as you say, looking for the right handhold or the, the right uh, placement of your ice tool or, or crampon points or whatever. And, and and that is a very tunnel-visioned focus, which, which does last for days and days and weeks uh, throughout the expedition. I mean, it's obvious that it takes great mental strength to do what you're, what you're doing. Is there any specific training that you do in this regard, or is it just something that you think you've, um, you've, I guess you have naturally? I do have a natural uh, physiology that allows me to cope with high altitude, but of course I have to train. I don't train uh, psychologically, other than the fact that I love having epics. So whenever I go for an outdoor adventure, it's always one that tests me uh, as as much as I can, but. Uh, in terms of physical training for the mountains, high altitude particularly is about legs and lungs. It's all about stamina. And as I get older, I find I have to train more and more every day, running and, and mountain biking and building that stamina uh, because explosive power uh, that we have when we're young isn't what you need at high altitude. It's, it's just long days um, for 10 or so weeks. And with that, that training, is that self-directed at the moment or do you consult with a, a sports scientist for example? No I've never gone down the sports science track I, I'm completely self-directed I've joined gyms in the past and not enjoyed them so uh, I, I do it under my own, uh, <laughs> own guidance but I, I'm, I'm quite a um, I'm perhaps not an introvert but I, I'm very comfortable with my own space so I'm happy to train hard by myself and in fact, I, I think I enjoy it more when I'm training by myself. But I like to have adventures with climbing partners. I don't climb solo all the time, uh, but I don't struggle for motivation to uh, get out and do it on my own. 
And what about, I guess, in the, the climbing world? You know, right at the beginning, we were talking about the, you know, the limits of possible. And I guess as we get closer and closer to those limits, is climbing becoming, I guess, um, more professional with, with other climbers using sports psychologists or nutritionists or sports scientists, etc.? It may well be. I haven't come across that. It's certainly becoming more commercialised and more available to less experienced people through the use of guides and, and support Sherpas. Um, there may well be extreme athlete um, climbers who do seek that sort of professional scientific support, but I'm not actually aware of it. I was surprised that in your book you describe yourself as as not a supreme athlete, but even though you might not see it, I see a lot of parallels between you and other great athletes. For instance, there is a controversial theory that you need 10,000 hours or about 10 years to become an elite athlete. And this seems to match pretty well with your training for your first 8,000 metre ascent. I was wondering if you could maybe just describe a little bit of your nine years of preparation to climb K2. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. When I, the dream to, to start mountaineering was born, I had seen a slideshow about climbing Mount Everest and I was so inspired by that vision uh, and that I decided I'd climb it myself. But you couldn't be guided in those days and, and I'm not the sort of person who would want to be. So it really became a, a matter of project management. And so whilst the end goal for me was climbing Mount Everest, I had to break that down into achievable chunks, uh, the first of which was to learn how to rock climb which I did in Australia, and I climbed uh, fanatically in Australia for a year before travelling to New Zealand and transferring those rock skills and rope skills to the alpine environment. And uh, I climbed for successive years uh, in New Zealand, building my alpine skills before then climbing around the world, building my altitude skills, and then finally taking on 8,000 metres. But in fact, my first two 8,000 metre expeditions, which were both to Mount Everest, were unsuccessful, um, and partly because uh, I, I was drawn into the rescues and, and, and assisting other people uh, on the summit pushes, but also I think there was some, probably some poor decisions made, uh, which I needed to learn from, and, and so I decided to step back from Everest and then uh, to go and climb a few other 8,000 metre mountains, build some more experience before I came back to Everest, and as you say, the, the first successful summit was actually K2, about nine years after I started climbing. And ironically, that is generally considered to be the hardest mountain in the world. Um, but I guess I'd, I developed sufficient skills to get me up there, although it was a desperate, uh, a very difficult ascent and a desperate descent. It's interesting. And I guess this ability to take small, persistent steps towards a long-term goal has been described as grit and it's, um, there's a researcher in America, Angela Lee Duckworth, who, who thinks it's one of the most important determinants of, of elite performance. How important do you think this grit has been in enabling you to achieve your incredible feats today? Uh, it's been absolutely vital. Uh, I, as I mentioned, the descent from K2 was uh, desperate, and in fact, two of my climbing partners were killed in that fall and another climber from another team also died. And whilst I didn't actually identify it at the time, I think I was uh, affected by those deaths. 
and my motivation waned a little bit for just for a couple of years and I still kept climbing but I, I then didn't succeed on the mountains I went to and I made a conscious decision that uh, I would either start succeeding or take up a different activity and with that conscious decision that I would simply not give up when I was uh, tired, sick, uh, exhausted, scared, uh, whatever, I would force myself through those uh, those stages and, and only allow myself to turn around when it was either simply too difficult for me or the risk was no longer acceptable. That that developed in me a new psychological approach of of simply well, grit's a great great word for it uh, that that I would keep going no matter what uh, until either of those two things stopped me. The risk was simply uh, too great, or it was just beyond my ability. And, and with that newfound psychology, if you like, I started to succeed uh, very regularly in the mountains. And that didn't make the mountain climbing any easier. Uh, I still had plenty of epics and, and a few uh, close survival experiences, but uh, I found myself time and again in situations where I was really very, very tired and, and just wanted to get get down and, and get back to warmth after being on the mountain for weeks or in blizzards or, or trapped or in very difficult climate conditions, but I just would not let myself give up, and uh, I think grit's probably the right word. How do you think you've been, seems to have that ability to push yourself to the very limit, but also quite accurately assess the risks? So how do you think you've been able to do that maybe a little bit better than some of the other climbers? Uh, to be honest, I was lucky in the first instance to survive the accidents that caused the death of those three climbers, um, but I learned from it and uh, I, I very quickly became a good risk manager. Uh, now, I continued to be lucky. There were incidents that occurred where others were killed and I could have been uh, and I was just purely lucky. But I certainly chose to take a very risk management uh, focus to all my climbs. So it was about calculated risk. And there were plenty of times where I deemed it uh, too dangerous to go on and, and that I needed to turn around. Or just on a particular day, the, the conditions were too cold and I needed to turn around, but just come back the following day just to, to fight off frostbite on that particular day. And so that drew... Uh, drew the process of climbing those mountains out for, for a number of years. One particular mountain took me five attempts because on several of those attempts, uh, the conditions were too dangerous. And but and it was my own risk assessment that uh, caused me to, to turn around and go back down and come back another year. And it was always a great disappointment because it delayed my objectives and cost me lots of money and, and affected <laughs> all the other aspects of my life. But um, that was very, very uh, important to me because at the end of the day, they are just lumps of rock and ice. So I think that, again, comes back to the grid, I guess, so to keep pushing on to, with that long-term goal in mind. The long-term goal of climbing all the peaks evolved from when I eventually summited Mount Everest in uh, 2000. That was my seventh successful 8,000-metre summit. And as I mentioned before, uh, I like challenges where the outcome is uncertain and, and the end of one challenge is always the starting point for the next and so having climbed Mount Everest I looked 
for the next big challenge. And, and at the time, only half a dozen of the world's elite climbers have, have climbed all 14 of the 8,000-metre peaks. And so that seemed an appropriate challenge. And I, I didn't really think that I would be able to achieve it because those other climbers were in a completely different uh, dimension as far as uh, mountaineering elitism goes. Um, but therefore, it made it a worthwhile challenge and uh, and a project to uh, to focus on and and to, and to push towards, uh, no matter how many years it took. And the way you've described it, I guess climbing often seems like a, a solitary pursuit. But I was interested to read that you like climbing in teams, and so I'm just wondering if you can tell me a little bit about, I guess, the team sport aspect of climbing a mountain. Oh, look, I think um, adversity shared is. Uh, um, makes the makes the achievement um, far more enjoyable, and I don't like climbing in big teams. And I don't tend to enjoy the the dynamics of big teams. But small teams of like-minded uh, individuals, two or three, to, to me that's an ideal size where you can you can work together. The, the, the leadership in those sort of circumstances are gen- is generally shared, and if you're climbing with um, people of similar experience and philosophy as to the approach to the climb, then it can be a very enjoyable experience. And I found that relationship with um, two or three other climbers over the years where we we, we almost didn't need to uh, to speak when it came to a particular um, challenge, a cliff that we had to climb or a crevasse to be crossed or whatever. We, we just knew what to do and we did it um, to the satisfaction of the other members of the group, um, but you know it is psychologically uh, very supportive to have team members to uh, to share the fears and the adversity with when when the times are really tough. And uh, and so of course it's wonderful to share the, the elation of success uh, at the end of those expeditions. I have climbed. Um, solo on some of them and that's a completely different challenge it's more of a psychological challenge and whilst there's a great sense of satisfaction at the end of it and you don't don't have anyone to share it with it is not as much fun One of the hot topics in sport is talent identification if we were to try and find the next great Australian climber, what sort of characteristics do you think we should look for? Hmm Gosh that's a good question I'd be looking for people who, under the radar, uh, are out climbing uh, interesting, technically challenging peaks in the ranges with little exploration and uh, who, who are doing it off their own bat without sponsorship because they tend to be the ones who, who have that grit uh, to take on the really big challenges without the need for kudos or a camera in their face. There are Australian climbers out there doing great things in remote and uh, barely known mountain ranges. So Australia already has great climbers out there doing things. Um, I just happened to get a bit of publicity because of the particular peaks I was climbing. But, but those, those uh, high-achieving Australian climbers are already uh, in action. Well, thanks for your time today, Andrew. Good luck with the, the book and also your appearance at the, the Melbourne Writers' Festival later in the month. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for that. Yeah.